What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hello and welcome to another EULA Live podcast conversation. I'm Daniel Sarmiento, Editor-in-Chief of EULA Live, and I will be your host. In this podcast, I am joined by none other than Daniel Calleja Crespo, Director General of the Legal Service of the European Commission. This department is, together with the Court of Justice, Europe's leading laboratory of EU law in action. The members of the legal service ensure the legality of commission action. They plead in thousands of cases in the Court of Justice, the General Court, as well as in the international courts. They are also the legal advisors of the President of the Commission and of the College as a whole, whispering in the ear as to the legal channels and limitations to those who launch and promote the EU's most transformative policies. So it was a true honor and a pleasure to sit with its Director General, my compatriot and namesake Daniel Calleja Crespo, whose professional life is closely linked to the Commission since 1986. Having been a member of the legal service first, he then navigated the cabinets of commissioners, being a head of cabinet on several occasions and then a Director General in highly relevant policy areas, internal market and environment. His life is the life of EU law in the past 40 years, and from his position now as Director General of the Legal Service, he's a privileged retrospective and prospective observer of integration through law. In 2022, celebrating 70 years of the Director General he leads, Daniel and his team published a unique work, a book authored by the members of the Legal Service itself, covering seven decades of integration. To some extent, in this podcast conversation, we go together through many of the challenges that he and his team have faced throughout the years, narrated in the book, but also through his personal story and his views about what integration still has to deliver for the citizens in the decades to come. Hello, Daniel. Thank you very much for having me here. Hello, Daniel. It's a great pleasure to have this conversation and to take part in your program. Now, I'm very happy that we can do a snapshot of your uh, fascinating professional life and your time here at the Commission, because you have devoted your professional life almost entirely to this institution, to the European Commission. You started as a member of his legal service back in 1986, and now you are its Director General, one of the most powerful positions in the EU legal community, I should say. Can you tell us about the kind of commission that you found when you arrived in Brussels in 1986 and what drove you to this job? I don't know if you can say my career has been fascinating. I would say yes, but it has been very long because I joined uh, the European Commission in 1986. I had studied law and economics. I did both degrees in Madrid, in the University of Comillas. I had a very short experience also in the private sector, in Procter and Gamble, and in those days, the most uh, exciting uh, project was the common market, the European communities. And for a country like Spain that had just concluded its ne uh, negotiations for the accession, Brussels was the place to be. 
uh, for any Spaniard at the time, uh, there were two uh, ideals which the European communities represented. On the one hand, freedom, democracy, all the political values that we were seeking in Spain to re-establish following the political transition. And on the second hand, of course, all the economic prosperity that we were seeing. So when uh, I got the possibility to participate in the concours, uh, I decided to apply. I had, I had studied uh, European law and I was also very fortunate because in Procter & Gamble, I had the possibility with the, the European lawyers of the company to have a lot of exchanges and a lot of exposure to certain areas of uh, competition law, business law. So I decided to apply. And uh, of course, I arrived at a very exciting moment. It was the Delors Commission. It was the Single European Act. It was the 1992 objective, establishing the single market. There was a frenzy in all commission services, 300 directives and regulations to establish this objective of the treaty, the freedom of circulation of goods, of services, the right of establishment, freedom of circulation of capitals, and to put in place all the rules that were necessary to harmonize. I was very surprised and very happy because I was invited by Klaus-Dieter Ellermann to join the legal service, which was like a dream to me because it was for a lawyer, it was the place to be. And I found uh, the legal service at the time was small, but it was a family. And Klaus-Dieter Ellermann was really leading this. He had a passion for excellence and I had the chance to work with amazing lawyers. Giancarlo Olmi, who was the Deputy Director General, Cesare Mastripieri, Bernard Polan, there were really Giuliano Marenko, all the colleagues who were at the time, and many young lawyers who later I found as directors. So I found myself in the middle of a very exciting process with the law at the center and with the law as the tool to promote European integration and to continue the establishment of the objectives which were at the basis of the treaties, but that with the Delors Commission, we had the, uh, the mission, very clear political task, to uh, succeed and to establish them. You've had an experience in the Commission which is very, very broad. You've been, from working at the legal service, then you passed on to perform tasks in other DGs, focused on specific policy areas. You were working in the chambers of commissioners, you were the head of cabinet of two commissioners, Marcelino Reja and Loyola de Palacio. You have also been a director general under different commissioners as well. Having such a broad array of experiences within the institution, what would you highlight of maybe not each of the role, but of the main roles? Well, it would be very long to detail all the experiences, but I can mention some. Uh, when I joined the legal service, I was very young, but I was the first Spanish lawyer well, later, Gregorio Garzón arrived, and other, but they were in more senior positions. So I was very fortunate because I was pleading all the Spanish cases at the beginning, which were arriving to the Court of Justice. I remember the first infringement cases against uh, the country I know best, as we say, Brussels, but in many different areas, uh, the PVC cases in competition, 
the Marlissing case on the uh, on directives, the uh, Micheletti case on nationality, mm, tax cases. I was in the tax team and then I moved to state aid. So I had the wonderful opportunity to handle, because of the lang of linguistic reasons, a very, very broad uh, set of cases. I was in the legal service for seven years and then I moved to the cabinets. And the cabinets, I would mention my work with Marcelino Oreja, very, very important negotiation. Uh, I had the chance to participate in the intergovernmental conference, which led to the uh, successful uh, negotiation of the Treaty of Amsterdam. And I think for a lawyer, it's a privilege to take part in an IGC. And this treaty, which didn't raise any problem of ratification, and which perhaps has not been so well understood as others, or uh, everybody talks about Maastricht treat, Treaty or Nice or Lisbon, but this treaty actually achieved many things like uh, integrating Schengen or the social protocol or highlighting the, import, the, the importance of the, uh, a certain number of uh, issues connected also to the rule of law. I remember the professionalism uh, working with real diplomat like Marcelino Oreja, former Minister of Foreign Affairs and Secretary General of the Council of Europe. I had the chance also to work with Jacques Santer, who was President of the Commission, and I was chairing the meetings on infringements, competition and state aid cases, which was also a privilege. And then uh, with Loyola de Palacio, very different style, very visionary, a real leader. She was Commissioner for Transport, Energy, and relations with the European Parliament, which following, following the fall of the Santer Commission was extremely important. She was the woman behind Galileo, Galileo project, and behind huge achievements in the area of transport, in the area of safety, the creation of the European Safety Agency, European Railway. We had the crisis of Erika and Prestige, which lead to the huge improvements in the uh, European regulation in this area. But uh, she was also in charge of energy. And I remember very well the Energy Green Book, where for the first time we outlined the three key objectives of the energy policy, competitiveness of the energy market, sustainability, and security of supply. And these objectives remain today more than ever present. So I had the chance of working with many, many different personalities. I can mention also Commissioner Tajani uh, in charge of industry and SMEs, internal market. I think I have been very lucky because in each of these positions uh, in the cabinets, I had the possibility of doing two things. First of all, understand how decisions are taken within the Commission. There are many officials who work for the European Commission, but they remain in the service and they don't really understand how decisions are taken. So the connection with the political level and the link between the technical and the political level is extremely important. And the second thing is working in a cabinet for a commissioner gives you a very good understanding of how to negotiate and how to achieve compromises and at the same time making these compromises work later with the Parliament and with the Council through the co-decision process. So very, very exciting experience. And uh, I think I, I have been very fortunate in working with very, uh, very important leaders from which you learn a lot.
And this has given you a privileged view of how the, the so-called community method works. And you have been able to see it in action in different policy areas. I'd like to ask you about the community method because I think that's a uniqueness of yeah. the European integration process. How, how would you, from that experience, how would you portray the community method, maybe in one of the areas in which yeah. you have been working more closely? Well, I think the community method is really unbeatable. It's, I think, one of the greatest ideas behind the European integration process. The principle of having an institution with the exclusive right of initiative, the qualified majority, and then the integration through the evolution of the uh, role of the European Parliament and the role of the Council is a winning combination. When you have the community method, you achieve decisions. At the end of the day, it can take more or less efforts, but when you go to a meeting and when countries know that there could be a vote by qualified majority, and I have witnessed the cases where in council meetings the commissioner says, in accordance with the rules of procedure, I ask for a vote. And if you have qualified majority, the decision is taken. Everybody negotiates. When you have a unanimity rule, uh, you know you can veto the discussions. So the community method is behind the greatest achievements. And this is why I am a firm believer, not only of the community method, but of the extension of the qualified majority uh, uh, voting rule. And as the European integration process continues, we have seen that in the areas where you are progressively introducing these principles, this is the areas where you make process. I have to say, together with the community method, I have to mention the role of the European Court of Justice. And many people uh, forget that it was the European Parliament who took the Council of Ministers uh, and launched an action for failure to act because it had not developed the transport policy as it should have done in the year 1985. And following that, following this judgment of the European Court of Justice, we actually established the European competence in this area and therefore the community method. Or when the European Commission took eight member states to the European Court of Justice because we argued that the bilateral aviation agreements with the United States were illegal, eight member states at the time, and the historic judgments of the court, which allowed us to assume community competence and therefore to extend the principles of the European Union, of the European policies, the community method to these areas, which then led to the success. I have been very fortunate because in the areas in which I have worked more directly, both I can mention transport or environment, I think these are key areas where you see the community method working well. But you have, I can also mention the importance of the international relations and where you have community competence, how this implies also in global areas like environment, like energy, like transport. Uh, we can negotiate with the sufficient weight with third countries. And at the same time, you make the European project advance. So it's interesting what, 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 you, what you've just said because I have a feeling from your words that your perception of majority decision-making 
it's not good because you vote on a majoritarian basis. It's good because it forces everyone to reach a consensus. Yes, because at the end of the day, when you look at the results, yes, you can have a vote, but um, most of the times it's not necessary because you can achieve consensus because at the end of the day, everybody wants to be in the success of, on the winning side of making an agreement. And uh, you do not want, there are some cases where the member state says, well, I have for political reasons, I'm obliged to vote against. But when you look at the record, this is the exception compared to the areas where you can make a statement or at the end of the day you take decisions by consensus. But I think it is this unique feature which has allowed us to deepen the integration process. And this is very, very clear in the dynamics that you see in the council groups, together with the fact that there is only one of the actors that can put the initiative on the paper. When you don't have this, and we don't have it in all the areas uh, of the union competence, uh, you have different uh, results. And this is a fact. When you have multiple sources of initiative, or when you decide by unanimity, obviously the progress is much lower. Let me talk now a little bit about your current activity as Director General of the Legal Service. How did the position arrive and how did you organize yourself, having been away from this Director General for, for such a long time? So, uh, in, the, in the European Commission we have a rule, which I think is a very healthy rule, is that we have mobility. Uh, senior management positions, directors, director generals have uh, an exercise of mobility. And I have been Director General of the Internal Market, then I moved to Environment, and I was offered the position of Director General of the Legal Service because probably among the Director Generals I was uh, uh, probably the only one who had worked in the Legal Service, who had the experience of having been to the Court of Justice, who, had the, who knew the Legal Service and who could fit well in the culture of the Legal Service, which is a very special service. This Legal Service is uh, relatively unknown outside the legal circles because it's not uh, DG competition or, or DG trade or uh, DG transport or DG energy. The, the, the legal service has a very specialized role which is also uh, connected to its structure. Compared to other DGs, the legal service has a very flat structure. We are not a hierarchical service. Every lawyer is uh, pleading cases since they arrive into the legal service, even in the most junior grades. We work in specialized teams and we have uh, the chance, and I think this is the most noble of all functions of the legal service, to represent our institution before the European Court of Justice, before the General Court, but also in other jurisdictions like the WTO or other international jurisdictions. The legal service has a special culture. It's a culture of excellence. We have a certain esprit de corps because of our functions. And there is a lot of discussion. There is a lot of interaction and a lot of respect among colleagues. In many ways, we are not so different to a law firm, but of course we have our specificities. The other important role of the legal service is advising our institution and making sure that uh, the political level and the services of the Commission 
uh, have the right proper legal advice so that every uh, decision, every directive, uh, regulation, communication uh, is fully consistent and compliant with EU law. And uh, this is something which uh, uh, is a specific role because this gives us the capacity, the power to advise in law uh, our political masters. Uh, the Director General acts as Juris Consult of the College of Commissioners. And the other specificity of the legal service is that we have no commissioner because we are under the authority of the President of the Commission, which also gives us a very privileged position within the DGs of, of, the, of the European Commission. You have been one of the Director Generals of the Legal Service that is pleading directly cases before the court as Director General of the Legal Service. Of course, I think you have been doing this very selectively in very high-profile cases. How, how, did, how did it feel wearing back the robe once again? It I felt very well because I think this is one of the best parts of the job. As, as I say, I think it's one of the most noble uh, elements of, of your work. It is, I think there have been many director generals of the legal service who have pleaded cases. Uh, we were referring to the case the parliament brought against the council on the inaction. Well, Mr. Ellerman was the agent of the commission in this case. Obviously, the director general of the legal service cannot have such an active role, regrettably, because I like very much uh, the possibility to present our arguments before the Court of Justice. But it is true that in some occasions, I think it is important also to support the agents, the colleagues of the legal service. And if the case is really important, I think it's it's useful and it is the responsibility also of the Director General, like any other lawyer of the legal service, to do to do the job. Yes, you have to be selective because uh, you have I have other other functions, but on the other hand, I think it's a duty of the Director General to, to also where necessary, where appropriate to, to appear before the European Court of Justice, before the General Court, or uh, before the European Court of Human Rights, which I will be doing in September in a case dealing with climate justice and uh, the issue of whether the, uh, there has been a breach of the fundamental rights of some uh, citizens because of the uh, alleged by the applicants inaction uh, of the states in the area of fighting against climate change. I mean, these are important cases and I think it's, it's normal. I see it as in something normal that, that you have to do. And in historical terms and in terms of context, you have, you are Director General at a time in which the EU is probably facing maybe the largest number of simultaneous existential challenges. <laughs> From the rule of law crisis, climate change you just mentioned, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the rise of a much more assertive China, a global pandemic. Um, how has the legal service adapted to become an emergency legal service, <laughs> so to say? Well, you are absolutely, absolutely right that what we have faced, the, the European project has always been confronted with crisis. Uh, I think it was Jean Monnet who said, Europe will be forged in crisis and it will be the result of its response to the crisis. And crises have always helped to accelerate the European project. But it is also true that what we have seen 
in, during the mandate of this commission has been unprecedented from Brexit to the pandemic to the economic recovery, then the Russian invasion, the energy crisis, and all the other very, very uh, emergency situations. I think the legal service has had to do its job as we have been doing throughout all these years. How have we done our job? Well, by providing the right advice on what were the mechanisms, what were the legal instruments to deal with this crisis. I can give you several examples. Uh, when the uh, emergency crisis uh, aro arose and we had to react, uh, well, we have used Article 122 of the treaty, which is a provision which allows for the Council to take appropriate measures confronted with a crisis which has an economic uh, dimension, in particular in the area of shortage of supplies, in the area of energy, and this has allowed us to take action. We were also, I think, uh, and this here I have to underline the leadership of President von der Leyen, when we had the pandemic crisis and some countries were taking unilateral action and we were seeing the risk that you could have first and, class, first and second class citizens depending on whether the country had the power to acquire the vaccines. So the, the Commission took over this responsibility in spite of the fact that under the treaty and under Article 168 we do not have the strongest powers, to say the least. Well, the legal service had to also s uh, suggest and uh, uh, advise on the way forward. And we were, I had three lawyers, seconded in all the process of the negotiations in order to ensure that we had that. When uh, we had the problem of the uh, disruption of the single market and obstacles to free circulation, it was the Commission here the legal service played also a very important role in delivering the digital COVID certificate which allowed the internal market and free movement to continue to keep the economy open and which is which was recognized in the end by many many countries across the world i could mention sanctions i could mention the energy i could mention the next generation eu and the energy recovery it is true we have had to respond to a situation of crisis on emergency, but I think it is the role of any service in the Commission, and the legal service cannot be an exception, to provide the legal advice to deal with these situations. And the treaty allowed us to do so. So it was possible under EU law to give a response to this situation of crisis. What we had to do was to identify and to propose to the member states and to get the agreement of the member states that this was the way forward. But the good news was that we were able within the treaty to find the appropriate instruments to deliver the most effective response to deal with this crisis. And in crisis mode you don't have the, the guidance of the court. You are to a certain extent walking in the dark because these are new crises, they are new problems. The case law might have <coughs> dealt with different situations and that's an additional challenge as well. Well, everything we do, we are in a state of law, wherein the rule of law has to be replied. We are a community of law. The, com the most important thing of the European project is the rule of law, and everything we do is under the scrutiny and under the control of the European Court of Justice. And in many of the areas I have mentioned, it is now up to the court to judge 
whether we have complied with the provisions of EU law. We have several cases where we are now defending the legality of the measures taken under Article 122, and the court will rule. In the area of sanctions, it is a very good example, where there is the possibility for the entities or the for the individuals which have been subject to restrictive measures under Article 215 of the treaty, following the CFSP decisions under Article 29, they can go to the court and seek redress if uh, the decisions which have been taken have not been compliant with the rules. So for us, what we try, of course, is that what our institutions do, what the proposals that the Commission adopts and that they are subsequently endorsed by the Council, are fully consistent and fully compliant with you. And we have the European Court of Justice, which at the end of the day, or the General Court, can rule. And I think this is how it should be. And what we have to uh, do is to give, as I say, the best advice and then defend effectively what we have done, which is also what we are doing in many instances which are now under the European Court. How about the long term? Because one of the, one of the well, I wouldn't say problems, but by being in crisis mode with very important issues, sometimes you might tend to lose the long term view of things because the crisis is now. If we look at the long term or even the medium term, where do you think are the most relevant legal issues of EU integration thinking in that long term be besides yes. the current crisis mode? Because I'm sure that besides solving immediate and sometimes very important problems, there are always the concerns about what's coming in the future. And what concerns you in terms of the yeah. future? Well, the first thing I have to say is that uh, we should be proud about what we have achieved. You know that this year we are celebrating, or 2022, we celebrated the 70 years of European law. I have to seize the opportunity to sell the book which the legal service has produced, uh, 70 years of EU law, a union for its citizens, where we emphasize how from a European community based on energy, we have developed now a European Union for the benefit of its citizens. This has been a unique transformation which has allowed us to move forward. I think there are four pillars when you look at the future. Uh, the most important one is the common values. And I think we have to build about on, on very, very strongly on the values which are at the basis of the European project. I mean, the principles of freedom, democracy, the rule of law, which are enshrined in Article 2, have to remain at the center of the European project. They are fundamental for the accession of new countries and they have to remain at the heart of the European project. The second thing which I would emphasize is the attachment to the community method which we were discussing. I think this, is, this has to also to remain at the basis of the European integration. Third, I would agree that we have to develop more structural solutions to deal with crisis management. I think this will be also a challenge, even though we have succeeded on the basis of the treaty uh, I think we will have in the future. If the European Union and if the uh, assumes more competence in many areas, 
and if the European Commission, without losing its uh, regulatory role, becomes more executive in many areas, it will be very important also to develop appropriate instruments in order to be able to better manage this crisis without prejudice to the existing mechanism. The final point which uh, I would make is, I think, that what is extremely important is the duty of loyal cooperation. The European system works because all the different actors work in, on the basis of this principle, of this duty of loyal cooperation, of what we could kind of call a kind of harmonious coexistence, where if every institution abides by the rules, at the end of the day, and we share these common values, and we agree on the projects that we have to do together with common instruments, the European project advances. And we have also to realize that we remain very little when you look at the global uh, dimension and that Europe has no chance but to pursue its process of deeper integration. We need to integrate deeper and faster. Whichever area you look, whether it's climate change, whether it's the environment, whether it's energy, whether it's transport, whether it's the uh, foreign policy, we have to ensure more and more integration. And for that, and we have to do it fast, because we do not want to have Europe as a kind of anecdote. Uh, and to do it on the basis of common values, because I think it's very important also to project these values. One of the most important things of the European project is that at the end of the day, we are proud of what we represent. And we have the duty to project also these values and to share them with other countries in the world, because at the end of the day, we think that this is a very important factor for global stability, global prosperity. So this is how what, what I would say. I don't know if this is very abstract, but I think it's extremely important to always be conscious of what are uh, the fundamental parameters of our action. One last question. Back in 1986, when you joined the Commission, you were actually a very small select group of lawyers, of EU lawyers, working on European community law at the time. If you look at the lawyers who are joining now the professional world of EU law, they are joining a very different union. What kind of advice would you give to a, a new professional joining the world of EU law, also thinking in the long term and thinking about the union that this person is going to have to deal with? Well, I think I continue to think that this is the most, this is the best job in the world. I mean, you can work in many different uh, positions in your life, in many different sectors. They are all very legitimate, but to have the chance to participate in the greatest adventure of the European integration, I think this is a privilege. To do it uh, in the position of a lawyer, it's even a greater privilege because EU law is at the basis of everything we have achieved and everything that we will achieve in the future because our systems is rules-based. So in a rules-based uh, system, uh, it is very, very important to uh, have the chance to shape this future. So um, when the European community started, the legal service started with three lawyers. 70 years later, we are 300. 
which is not so much when you realize that we handle 2,000 cases per year and 15,000 decisions every year of the European Union. So this, all this has to be defended and scrutinized. Uh, I think uh, that uh, for a lawyer, young lawyer who starts now, and I attach a lot of importance in the selection because we need to keep the excellence of the legal service and we are trying to recruit very well and to have very, very competent and very professional lawyers, but we are also looking for colleagues who are motivated, who want to be part of this project. And for these lawyers, besides the professional satisfaction that you can have, I think that they have also the chance of contributing to what hopefully in 40 years' time will be a more united Europe, probably it will be more diverse, it will be more inclusive, but I hope it will also be more effective. And uh, I think something which we have not mentioned so much, but is, which is also at the basis of the European project, I think the principle of solidarity and the principle of equality among member states is extremely important. For us, it's, vi it's vital to attract and retain the best legal talent from across the EU to provide opportunities. And this is what we are doing. I think that it's extremely important that our union remains very much at the service of the citizens. This is the title of our book, A Union for Its Citizens. We are not in an academic exercise of distribution of competence. We are not in an abstract project. We are not in endless meetings at diplomatic level. What we are doing is delivering concrete benefits delivering in many cases new rights, but also concrete benefits for the citizens. And the citizens are at the center of the European project, and they have to remain at the center of the, Union, of the European project because everything can, it will be possible with them and all the achievements that we have done are in their interest and for their benefit. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Daniel. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can continue to explore many of the topics we discussed in the remarkable book edited by the Legal Service of the European Commission and authored by its members, 70 Years of EU Law, A Union for Its Citizens. It is available online in the publication's office, and it's an excellent read. Wave Beats Music